Well, this morning we finish our short series on anger, and then the larger series of looking at the book of Psalms. And we began three weeks ago with looking at anger or wrath as we see it as an attribute of God. And next we asked if a Christian can be righteously angry like that. Can he be angry like the Lord and distinguished righteous anger from sinful anger? And then last week we examined how that's still not the end of the questions because even righteous anger needs to be accompanied by mercy as we see that also mirrored in God's own attributes. In particular, we learned the importance of tempering righteous anger with considerations of merciful patience, a forgiving heart, charity, and the hope to constructively resolve conflict. And, and we saw that anytime we are reflecting the attributes of God, whether they are anger or mercy or any other attribute, because these are, in fact, reflective of God's good and holy traits, our godly modeling and use of them should actually encourage worship of God. We're, if we're actually reflecting the Lord, we should be encouraging others to worship God in our relationships should be improving. So even after you have gone through the inquiry and think, well, I have the right basis on which to be angry today, and you find that your relationships are breaking down, that's often a key indicator that you are not likely reflecting well God's good attributes. So today, as we finish this, we ask, why do I struggle so much with anger? And for that, our passage is Psalm 73. So if you wouldn't mind turning there and standing as we read God's holy word, acknowledging that this is his inspired word, not just the words of men, but words that are true for every generation, including us today. Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And therefore their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore as people, they turn back to them and, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I said I will, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. 
And then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from me shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this beautiful word. And this very transparent psalmist, Asaph, who speaks of the same types of things that we struggle with and gives us some clear, good advice to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over the past few weeks, have you found yourself described at all along the way? Perhaps it was on the sober assessment of how often you lapse into sinful anger versus righteous anger. Maybe it was a conviction over how you've not considered mercy to be compatible with anger. And so your concern has so often been just with justice. Maybe you've just felt hopeless because you find that you're so easily angry in so many different situations and ways and and maybe you just don't know how to get out of the hole that you seem to have dug yourself that has ended up in despair or bitterness or just simply survival. Well, in Psalm 73, I see a man who in hindsight realizes that he was in a bad situation and he handled it poorly. Verse 2 says that his feet had stumbled, his steps had nearly slipped, and what he means by that is clarified in the next verse when he says, I was envious of the arrogant. And after having reviewed all of the ways that the wicked and the arrogant seem to profit at the expense of the godly. In verse 13, he says, in vain I kept my heart clean. Didn't work. In verses 21 and 22, he admits that his soul during that time was embittered. That he was brutish and ignorant. He recognizes in verse 15 that if he had spoken the words that he'd felt like saying in the moment, that he would have betrayed the current generation of God's children. You hear Asaph? And it's helpful to see a godly man like him struggling with things like bitterness and envy and anger. And we can identify when in verse 16 he says, that trying to all understand all of this is a wearisome task. How many times have you, in the midst of 
these cycles of anger or frustration just say, I am so weary. Well, that's what Asaph said. He said, trying to understand it is, it's a wearisome task. Why not just lapse into speaking our mind? Why not just do that? Like he said, if, if I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed the current generation. But why not just do that? Why not just be a brutish and ignorant beast. It's so wearying to even think about what it would take, right? To, to change things around, to get out of, like I said, out of the hole. But the thing is, there's too much at stake, friends. And we need to understand the truth behind our issues. We have to be willing to work at this even though we are weary. Because God deserves our faithful obedience. We'll pick up Psalm 73 again a little later, particularly looking at what Asaph learned, but I first want to direct your attention to what may be a familiar passage in the New Testament, the end of James chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask, and therefore you do not receive. Or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, there are many reasons that people give for being angry. And usually they are external reasons. Mistreatment by others, bad patterns learned by family or friends, body physiology. And I don't want to diminish any of those. In Psalm 73, mistreatment by others is a huge factor in Asaph's life. And that mistreatment can be from enemies like Asaph or it can be from a spouse or from parents or friends. With regard to bad patterns learned by family or friends, some of you grew up in families with angry angry parents or siblings, and perhaps the model you learned was to respond with anger, and you've seen it often produce the results in the short term that you want. Still others of you struggle with genetic abnormalities or imbalances in hormones or other body chemicals which can cause pain or weariness or prompt mood changes that are real challenges. And they are relevant 
influential factors. The Bible, in fact, recognizes with compassion that we live in a cursed world among sinful people, and the outer man is decaying, right? It's harder as we age. And all of this can become an occasion for sin. But importantly, none of these factors are mentioned by James as the primary cause of our conflict. Rather, James points instead to the internal factors of heart and mind because we are not passive machines. We are not determined by software programming. If you put garbage in, garbage does not have to come out. We are beloved creatures made in the image of God who are able to respond morally and who are accountable to God. And so James reminds us that we are a people who struggle with pride, who struggle with worldly passions and envy. And that's what Asaph realized about himself. And that's what we need to work through in our own hearts. External factors make the struggle harder. But at the end of the day, James implies that we cannot blame nurture or nature. Instead, the blame lies primarily in the spiritual realm with our desires. Why am I prone to anger? I am prone to anger because I have a heart problem that only God can solve. And one of the dangers when it comes to anger is that we treat it like it is a thing. Something either inside of us or something that happens to us. We talk about bottling up our anger. Or we talk about anger seething and boiling. Building up pressure until it finally escapes. And when we look at anger this way, our temptation is to see ourselves as helpless victims. Anger becomes something that happens to us, and we are the victims who explode when it becomes too much. We have to try to avoid it or minimize it, but not something for which we must repent. If you treat anger as a thing, it is easy to separate it from discussions of morality and obedience. But what if anger is not a thing, but is a part of you? What if, as we defined two weeks ago, anger is a moral action, a response of your whole person, heart, mind, and body, an action to, for which you must give an account to God? Then the solution means that you need to understand yourself better. And perhaps increase in your faith. It doesn't mean that anger has to be vented or let out to be resolved, but rather that you need to address what is leading to the anger in the first place. And James suggests you may discover that it is a spiritual heart issue. How are pride, worldly passions, and envy causing conflict in your relationships? I'll give you four questions to ask, to help answer that question. The first one is this, to ask yourself, what makes me angry and how do I typically respond? 
What makes me angry? How do I typically respond? Think about the types of situations and circumstances that often make you angry. Are they ones in which you do not have control? Are they times when you feel that you are mistreated or misunderstood? The things that make you angry reveal what is important to you. It could be anything from not feeling in control of yourself or your environment to needing order, consistency, respect, admiration, etc. How do you typically respond in those moments? Do you get ready to vent and fight? Do you want to run away? Do you lapse into dark thoughts about others or yourself? Do you grow anxious, sick to your stomach, or grow enraged? Do you find yourself prone to physical outbursts and profanity? It's a good question to ask. What makes me angry? And how do I typically respond? Second is, what do I want? And I've mentioned that question several times over the past few weeks. We've talked about what we should want. But what is it for you that typically underlies these anger moments? Remember this critical point. Your anger does not come out of your situation. It comes out of you. Yes, your spouse offended you. Yes, your child disrespected you. Yes, that person cut you off in the car ahead and for an instant created a safety hazard. But none of those give you anger. When your spouse offended you, what did you, that internal person filled with needs and desires, what did you want? Did you want to be loved, honored, respected, understood? When your child disrespected you, what did you want? Did you want peace? To feel like your parenting matters? When that person cuts you off, what do you want? Do you want a world where everyone does unto you as you would have them do on to them, a calm drive without anxiety, a world where people don't get ahead by recklessly endangering others? Do you find beneath those desires pride, self, love for the world, envy? When false desires and beliefs rule your life, they produce sinful anger. It can even be very good desires, but you want them too much so that they become idols in your life. If God ruled your life, those affections would be filtered through his word, both the quality of the affection, what you are desiring, and the quantity, how much you're desiring it, would both be filtered through God's word. You might feel some frustration and disappointment, but perhaps you wouldn't get so stuck in the same anger patterns that you find yourself in over and over again. Remember that God is present and in control of every life situation, including the ones you identified as making you angry. You are not in control. You probably never will be, not fully anyway. But that doesn't mean that the world is out of control. It's important that you believe that to be true in even something as seemingly random as a person cutting you off on the freeway. God is there. He is in control. And he is interested in how you respond. 
His Spirit is working in you to desire and do His good pleasure. And part of that pleasure would be that you become a person who is slow to anger, who abounds in mercy, and fully trusts in Him. Realize that asking a question like, what do I want, is another question that is helpful in revealing what is important to you. In the times that you've been angry lately with something other than God and his kingdom most important to you in that moment. Third question. What are the consequences of my anger? What have they been? This question is asked after you get angry or perhaps as you look back on the times that you can remember being angry. Was God glorifying? Did your relationships improve? Or were the consequences instead that relationships were stressed and you had to confess and repent of sinful words and actions? Fourth question, how can I respond differently? Next time. Unless you have gone through all of those previous questions and passed them with answers that reveal godly motives and godly responses and godly consequences, the chances are instead you have identified either a pattern or at least times where your flesh continues to take control and lead to ugly scenarios. And only repentance and faith will lead to changes in behavior, emotion, thoughts, because they require you to work back through the questions and replace those answers with better ones for next time. What am I going to do differently next time? I will fill in the blank. You might be surprised how actually asking how you can respond differently in the future will prepare you to actually respond differently when the challenge appears because most of the challenges that we face are repeats. They tend to be the same things over and over again. The same types of confrontations with a child. The same types of arguments with a spouse or an employer. But I come back to what I said earlier. We are prone to anger because we have a heart problem. And I think we see this problem revealed in three common areas. Our anger with God, our anger with ourselves, and our anger with others. First, you find yourself angry with God. One theme that we have seen in the Psalms this year is a recurring set of questions by the psalmist. Why aren't you acting? Why do you delay? How long must I wait while you hide your face from me and allow me to suffer? And it's tempting when we feel God's seeming absence to think that he lacks care or concern. And it can make us angry at God especially in our most painful moments. Maybe you've heard it said that it's all right to be angry at God. After all, he knows our weaknesses and can handle it. He, he wants us to tell him how we feel and what we think. So 
Isn't that true of anger as well? But Proverbs 19.3 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. And Solomon suggests, like we saw in James earlier, that this folly of the flesh that not only can lead to ruin, but also by extension makes us rage against the Lord is not right. And if we dissected the times that the psalmist in their laments seem frustrated with God, we would find that nearly every time they remind themselves that God is good and his ways are higher than our ways. Yes, there's real frustration, even despair in the psalms. But the psalmist's complaints contain no cursing, no hateful bitterness, no hostilities, no blasphemies. They know and trust that God is good. Friends, their dismay is not over believing that they've been mistreated by God, but because they struggle to reconcile his promises with their trials, his timing with their need. They move towards God in honest faith. They wrestle with their circumstances. They ask him to hear their prayers and take action that is consistent with his goodness, with his promises, with his righteousness that they know are his. Even in our morning's passage, beginning with verse 23, we read Asaph saying, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's what we hear frequently in the midst of that frustration and despair, the statements of faith. And whereas the psalmist moved towards God in Faith in their moment of, of need, those who are sinfully angry at God shove him away. The psalmists are showing how to voice distress in a cry of faith and reaching out and acknowledging that you are trusting, not in a roar of blasphemous rage. If you find yourself angry with God, are you struggling with having determined what God should do and what he should, when he should do it? If anger is this negative moral response, in a sense negative is against something, a moral response against a perceived evil, then if you're mad at God, put that, you know, draw that natural conclusion. If you're mad at God, Aren't you therefore perceiving some evil in him? That should not be. And that's why any anger directed towards God is sinful. You will never find evidence that God lacks care or concern for his people. And note that I said his people because there are times when God does turn against a sinful, rebellious nation. Still, he preserves his people. He cares about their suffering. The world may oppress and persecute us, and God may allow that to sanctify, test, or even discipline us, but all of it must be seen against the background of God's goodness and righteousness, as Asaph says. Jesus told us that following him would involve a cost. 
It's an agonizing road. He also promised that joy would be found on that road as we depended upon him. And as we reminded ourselves, like Asaph, that God holds our hand, our right hand, he says, guides us with his counsel and afterwards receives us into glory. He is our only hope. If you find that you've been angry at God, the only response, the only right response is to repent, as we see Job do in Job 42. I have uttered what I did not understand. I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I vented at the Lord. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Another hard issue we must address is anger at ourselves, usually brought on by disappointment. Since anger is a negative moral response against a perceived evil, in this case the perceived evil is usually either our sin or our lack of meeting expectations. Popular psychology tells us we must forgive ourselves and move on. But be careful. If you are angry at yourself, then the first question you must ask is whether you are using God's standards or your standards. Your standards will often be achievement-based and tell you that you have to be successful in your work, you have to be the perfect spouse, the perfect child, perfect friend, parent. God's standards, however, will be moral-based and have to do with his law. The second question is, who is doing the forgiving? Is it you or is it the Lord? Many people say, God has forgiven me, but that's not enough because I cannot forgive myself. What is that saying? It says that my forgiveness is what is most important and more significant than God's forgiveness. And unfortunately, when I both set the standard and the source of my own forgiveness, I also become my own savior. And usually what that means is that I work extra hard to live up to my standards, and sadly, I rarely meet them. I try over and over again to redeem myself and just end up angrier and angrier at myself, which in turn often leads to bitterness and depression. If you're struggling in this area, remember that Jesus Christ is the Savior. It is God's law and his forgiveness through Jesus that matters. To live by my standards is to exalt my law in the place of God's law. That is pride. To allow others to set the standard is to exalt them as idols in the place of God. That is a fear or envy of man. You do not want to fall victim to a false gospel, the gospel that either you can overlook true sin by simply forgiving yourself, or the gospel that says that your standards and your self-forgiveness are what are important. In biblical forgiveness, there is no hint of you are worthy so you can feel okay about yourself. The truth actually doesn't give us much reason to feel good about ourselves. 
And as we honestly look at our sin, Paul says in Romans that that reflection, that self-assessment actually stops every mouth for all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only good and worthy man freely died for ungodly, weak, sinful enemies. Those, those reasons hardly, facts hardly offer a reason for confident self-acceptance and self-forgiveness. You need to be looking to God's standards and God's source because grace, by definition, cancels self-righteousness. Here's what I'm saying. Low self-esteem and anger at yourself is not cured by wrongly describing yourself as worthy, nor is it cured by changing where true worth comes from. The worth of Jesus Christ who redeemed the unworthy is the gospel. He alone gives perfection. He alone can bear guilt. He offers true forgiveness and real righteousness. He gives indwelling power. His Holy Spirit to renew your mind, to give you joy, to change you. You do not have to keep trying to live up. You won't. You won't live up to your standards. And you certainly won't live up on your own to the standards of God's perfect law. Jesus died for you. And finally, we have the heart issue of anger at others, a topic we've been discussing from different angles over these last few weeks. We've seen what causes our anger at others. James and others have told us that our desires are ruling us and they produce sin and conflict, not love and peace. And even perfectly good desires, like I said earlier, like the desire to be understood, can be perverted when they become idols that rule us. And when the desires that rule us begin setting our expectations and demands, we inevitably get sinfully angry when they're not met, or we get sullen, or bitter, or frustrated, or withdrawn. Those are all aspects of the same thing. Your anger with others is often a hard issue because you have left your first love. In my pastimes of sinful anger, I have loved myself, my comfort, my reputation, pleasure, sense of control, you name it, all more than I loved God. And James warns us against that, those bitter jealousies, those selfish ambitions about coveting, pride, friendship with the world. Let me read you something good I came across this week. The author says, we are meant to live with God on the throne with a wide open heart to him and others. But a contentious, judgmental person is shriveled up inside. I would say you, you could replace that with the, the sinfully angry person, the chronically angry person has shriveled up inside, become closed and hard to both God and neighbor. In attempting to ascend to the throne of judgment and control reserved for God alone, she becomes... Perverted, corrupted, polluted, she becomes, in fact, satanic. She acts in the image of the accuser of the brethren and adversary of the well-being of others. 
an unlawful bringer of destruction, a tyrant and a vigilante, on the outside, contentious, chronically angry person, whatever, speaks rotten words that tear down rather than build up, that deal out condemnation rather than give grace. On the inside, that person is swept up in sinful anger and has become demonic and diabolical in the truest sense, an image bearer of the great and wrathful critic of God's people. God intends a different image that we become bearers of mercy, redemption, and aid to others, particularly in their sin. Wow. Those are hard words, especially to think that in our sinful anger against others that we are actually acting in the image of Satan rather than God. But those are helpful surgical words. We have to lay bare the truth and not try to excuse it like, well, you know that was my upbringing. Or, well, you know that's how I, I just lost track of it in the moment and I'm better now. We have to lay bare the truth that we are not acting in the image of God in those moments, but we are acting in the object or in the image of his adversary. And the surgical words allow us to do heart surgery. And that's where the remaining portion of James 4, beginning of verse 6, which is right after that previous passage that we read at the beginning, is so helpful. James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your minds, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. First of all, you know, we've so often looked at this passage and especially that part of resist the devil and he will flee from us. And we've treated it like, oh, there's a devil out there that's tempting us. And if we just resist, he will go away. Well, what if we have been acting in his place? That's a much scarier thought, isn't it? And what if resisting the devil and fleeing from us is, is part of saying that as we live like God, that everything that, that is being reflective of and representing him goes away from us in our relationships. But look at what it says here. God gives grace to the humble, and it says he gives more grace. More grace than what? More grace than the sinful desires that have led you into sinful anger. Every facet of the grace of God is tailored to cleanse and to renew angry, critical, fearful, proud people. It is a forgiving grace in which through Christ all of your sins are forgiven and it is an enabling grace, a power to do what God desires you to do the next time you are challenged to be sinfully angry. That is what more grace means, more grace But James says that you must draw near to God. You must cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. It means that you have to confess your sin, submit to the Lord. You have to stop making your life about your kingdom, your standards, your desires. 
You must mourn over how sinful anger has done nothing but tear down your relationships and poorly reflect upon God. It has done nothing but make you and those around you miserable. As long as you remain convinced that you deserve to be angry or that external factors are making you angry or that you derive in some way a perverse pleasure from anger or think that it's easier to remain withdrawn and not work on relationships, then you are not ready for the grace that God offers. But God promises to offer you grace as you seek it in humility and he offers you wisdom. That as we saw back in James 3 was first pure, remember that? Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Aren't those the things that you want? Peace, gentleness, openness to reason, mercy, impartiality, sincerity. Aren't those the exact opposites of the things that have drawn you into sinful anger? And these all flow from the pure wisdom of God. And from those flow more traits like long-suffering and kindness and self-control, so much more. Here's another thing I read. One more quote today. No list could ever capture the many creative, timely, and appropriate things that repentant people do and say as they learn to make peace. Keep your mouth shut when you used to blurt out a reaction. Speak up courageously when you used to get intimidated. Embed your criticism of another in both appropriate condemnation and Christ-centered optimism. Treat people fairly, representing them accurately and recognizably rather than misrepresenting them. Speak accurately, abandoning prejudicial language, always and never, are rarely true, usually more destructive than constructive. Speak calmly rather than with gusts of inflammatory emotion. Speak strongly rather than inhibited by timidity. Raise an issue you used to swallow. Overlook an offense you used to explode about. Solve the problem rather than attack the person. Expect to see Christ at work rather than despairing or panicking when troubles come. The gentle answer turns away wrath, replacing the harsh words that stir up anger. When you get the log out of your own eye, you really can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Odds are he'll trust you as you do it and he'll love you for it. And the cornucopia continues to overflow. And I think as I read those things, there was probably one or more things in there that you would like to see changed in your own life. I know in those times of anger, You've often wanted the wrong things, but if you're a believer, then this list that I just read sounded good, should sound good. They're the things that I want. So I encourage you today, I commend to you today, humble yourself, give up, stop setting your own standards, stop trying to save yourself, stop venting your anger at God and other people. Ask for the pure wisdom of God. Pray for more grace than the desires that motivate you. And remember, why am I prone to anger? I am prone to anger because I have a heart issue. And God gives more grace than my sin. Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious God indeed. 
And you give abundantly to those who ask you without double-mindedness, who ask you in humility, who desire your pure wisdom more than what the world offers. And I pray that we would mourn over our sin, that we would be broken over what has been causing us to get into these sinful patterns of anger or bitterness or depression or despair, caused us to withdraw, caused us to explode, whatever it is, Lord, that has become for us a wearisome task. Lord, I pray that instead that we would remember the future, not only the future end of the wicked, but also our own future that you are preparing in eternity for us of glory. And that that would give us the long-term perspective. It would help us to trust, help us to persevere. And it's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen.